Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you. Welcome. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 as you make your way back to your seat. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Lord, I don't know if we fully grasp how merciful and gracious you are to us every day. And that everything we have is from you. Lord, as we look at Scripture, we learn that you, your kingdom endures forever, and that you rule from generation to generation. No one can block your hand. No one can say to you, what have you done? When we compare ourselves to you, we are only a vapor. Lord, my prayer for us is that as we behold you in your word, can that create in us a humble posture? Lord, can the words that we hear not just stimulate our minds intellectually, but let it shape our hearts and the posture of our hearts? Lord, can you do a work that I cannot do, that we cannot do together? Lord, we cannot understand truth without you, so may your Spirit illuminate truth. Lord, as we talk about pride and humility, Lord, can you expose to us the pride that are so hidden and so deceived inside of our hearts? Can you help us to repent and turn to you in humility? Can you help us to trust you and look to you? Can you help us to behold your glory? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. And we're continuing our study through the book of Daniel. And my hope for us in this series, and the reason why I did pick the, the book of Daniel for us to go through, is that especially when we find ourselves, we look around the world and we see everything that's going on, and we just feel like it's just chaos and turmoil. There's a shortage of everything. And so how do we respond as Christians? And my hope is that we would realize that God is and will establish an everlasting kingdom. And that as exiles, as sojourners on our way to the promised land, that we will remain faithful to the Lord, trusting in His sovereignty, believing that our God is in complete control of everything. Now, as we get to our text, we are reminded Proverbs 8 verse 13 teaches us that the Lord hates arrogant pride. He hates evil evil conduct and perverse speech. And perhaps no one in the Bible came to understand this truth better than King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was proud of his accomplishments. He was proud in his speech. And he learned the hard way that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. He learned the hard way that you can be strutting around like a king one day and saying, look at all that I've accomplished, and then the next day live like an animal. 
He learned the hard way that God is God and he is not. And so what we're going to see in chapter 4 is that God is in complete control and God is sovereign even over human kingdoms. We're going to learn that all the kingdoms of this earth is under God's rule and he gives these kingdoms and these dominions to whoever he pleases and he takes them away. So so let's look at our text and see how all of this unfolds. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live in the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now we'll stop here and you're immediately thinking, this does not sound like King Nebuchadnezzar we've read in chapter 1, 2, and 3. This is a guy who has a short fuse and if you defy him, he threatens to dismember you and turn your house into a garbage dump. He throws teenagers into fiery furnaces. He makes golden statues and say, this is God. Bow down and worship this God because this statue represents me. And now we read about what he is saying about the Most High God, and you're wondering, what in the world has changed? Well, he he tells us in verse 2, look at what changed. In verse 2, he says this, I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. In other words, the Lord has done something so much that has gripped his heart. And in verse 3, he he breaks out in a hymn of praise and he kind of recalls Psalm 145, verse 13, where he says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your rule is for all generations. In other words, what we're seeing in our text is how Nebuchadnezzar's worldview has turned on its head for his entire life. He's been ruling people, oppressing people, looking down on people. And now he's finally looking up and he glorifies the God he sees. So what happened? What wonders and miracles did the Lord perform that would make such a radical change of such an egotistical, arrogant man? Well, let's, let's look at the rest of his story. Look at verse 4. We're going to read a big chunk, and I'm, I'm not going to recount the story, so just stay with me. I'll make a couple comments, and then we'll move on to the application. Look, look at verse 4. It says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream, and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. And when the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners came in, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel, named Belshazzar, after the name of my God and a spirit of the holy gods is in him, came before me. I told them the dream. Balthazar, head of the magicians, because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. In the visions of my mind, as I was lying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth. 
and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. And as I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the vision of my mind a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let them be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so, so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me. But you can't, because you have a spirit of the holy gods. So a couple comments. We, we see the story begins with him recounting the second dream he had. And we notice right off the bat, he is comfortable, living in luxury, at ease in his palace until God hits him right between the eyes with another frightening dream, a personal crisis. And this dream keeps him up. And as previously when he had a dream, what does he do? He goes to all the magicians, all the wise men, all the Chaldeans, and, and calls them in to go ahead and interpret the dream. And like a fool doing the exact same thing, expecting different results, he goes to them. And yet they were unable to interpret the dream. And eventually he goes to Daniel, someone he should have gone to from the very beginning. And this time he doesn't make Daniel recount the dream, but rather tells Daniel the dream and asks for an interpretation. And we've read about the dream. But verse 17 is important because I believe verse 17 is a key that helps us to understand the dream and the interpretation of the dream and what the main emphasis is of chapter 4 and even, I think, the rest of Daniel. Look at verse 17, it says this. This word is by decree of the watchers, and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and He gives them to anyone He wants and sets the lowliest people over them. In other words, what is the purpose of this judgment on the tree that will be cut down and the stump remains? is so that the tree will be able to realize that God is ruler over all the kingdoms of the earth and He gives these kingdoms to whoever He wants to. And even at times, He sets the lowliest people over them. So in other words, what's the main idea that the Lord is trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar and us? God rules over human kingdoms. 
God gives human kingdoms to whoever he wants. Now, I could be wrong, but I have a hunch and a suspicion that I think Nebuchadnezzar knew the meaning of the dream. And yet, he still asked Daniel to interpret this dream. So let's look at this interpretation in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was stunned for a moment, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered, my lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and was visible to the whole earth and whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and on it was food for all under the wild and all under it the wild animals lived and in its branches the birds of the sky lived that tree is you your majesty for you have become great and strong your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth The king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it and the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my lord the king. You'll be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and He gives them to anyone He wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, May my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. And so when Daniel heard the dream, immediately he stunned and alarmed. And I don't think Daniel is stunned and alarmed because he's in fear of his life, but rather he's in fear of what's going to happen to the king. In a sense, maybe he's, he's created a relationship with the king where he really genuinely cared for the king. And when he heard what was going to happen to the king, it stirred great fear in him, compassion towards the king. And Daniel doesn't tell the king what he wants to hear, but rather tells the king what he needs to hear. And I think the interpretation can be summarized in straightforward, simple propositions. He tells the king, you, you're the tree. You're the tree being chopped down and the stump remaining. You are the one who's going to live like a wild animal. And all of this is going to happen to you to teach you a valuable lesson that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and He will give them to anyone He wants. And yet when you come to your senses, your kingdom will be restored. God is gracious and loving and he is quick to forgive and to show mercy. Daniel pleads with the king, listen to my advice. Stop sinning. 
Repent from your sins and start doing the right thing. Stop the wicked injustice and show mercy to the, impre- to the oppressed. And perhaps if you do it now, God might be merciful and not give you what you deserve. So in other words, what Daniel was pleading with the king is the Lord is warning you. Repent. Turn from what you're doing. And maybe the Lord will be merciful and gracious to you and not give you what you deserve. And so the question is, did the king repent? Let's look at verse 28. It says this, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You'll be driven away from people to live with the wild animals and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. And at that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Like, like notice the, the first thing is since the time he had the dream and the interpretation of the dream, how much time have passed before that dream became a reality? Twelve months. Like a whole year, the Lord has been merciful and gracious to him, warning him, if you do not humble yourself before me, this is what's going to happen. And for an entire year, he gave him the opportunity to turn from his sins and humble himself before the Lord. And somehow, Nebuchadnezzar, like all of us, are quick to forget the Lord's warning. And what does he do? He struts around on the roof of his palace and he looks at his kingdom and he says, man, have I done a great job. Look how awesome I am. Look how much I've accomplished. Look how much I've built. I am this golden statue. My kingdom will endure forever from generation to generation. And what happened? The Lord's judgment was swift. The king, who was a superhuman, now became subhuman. He lived like a wild animal for seven periods. In other words, a period of completion or seven years. Acting like an animal, eating grass like an ox, unkept hair, nails like claws. Sinclair Ferguson, he makes a comment. He says, the one who refused to honor God's glory loses his own glory. Refusing to share what he has with the poor, he becomes poorer than poor. He becomes outwardly what his heart has been spiritually and inwardly. He becomes bestial. And that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. 
refusing to honor God's glory, focusing on his self-glory. And really what was inside, the wickedness inside became visible outward. He was an animal on the inside the way he treated people. And outwardly he became an animal. After looking down to the ground like an animal, we're going to see how he finally looks up. Look at verse 34. We're going to wrap up the text and then we'll get into application. Verse 34 says this, But the, at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified Him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, What have you done? And at that time my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the King of the heavens, because all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. The king looked up. And his sanity was restored. He praised and honored the Most High. So what did he learn? Three things I think he learned. First is that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He learned that his own kingdom is fragile. It could be taken away in a moment. But the Lord's kingdom endures forever he learned that the only reason he is serving as king he's ultimately serving at the pleasure of the most high and his earthly dominion can be vanished and taken away in a moment his rule is like a vapor it's gone and the last thing he learned is that god's alone god alone is has a true and lasting dominion and when he came to his senses the king of babylon declared that under god's sovereign rule all the inhabitants of the earth is as nothing in other words he's not saying we're useless but in a sense we compare ourselves to god you can't even compare we are like nothing compared to god and Nebuchadnezzar confessed his sov- God's sovereignty over every realm and everyone, and none were outside of his control, not even the king. And if God wills or acts, who can block his hand? And who can say to him, what have you done? And so he praises God. And, 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 this, and this praise is grounded in two truths, that all God's work is right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride will be humbled. So let's get to application here. I know I kind of rushed through the story. I didn't want to retell the story because you can read and comprehend it. It's pretty simple to understand. But what's some application here? Here's the main theme that this chapter is teaching us, that I really believe that the whole book of Daniel is teaching us, that God is sovereign over everything, including earthly kingdoms. So if that is true, 
if God is sovereign over everything and sovereign over earthly kingdoms and rulers, what does that mean for us? That means, if you're taking notes, that our posture should be a posture of humility. If the Lord is sovereign, if the Lord rules over everything, if His dominion ranges from generations to generations and His kingdom endures forever, what that means for us in our heart's posture, it should be a posture of humility. And, and, and I think what we saw in our text today is the danger of pride and how the Lord humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Like C.S. Lewis tells us this about pride. He says that the pride is the great sin and with good reason. It is the sin that led to the fall of Satan. It is the sin that led to the fall of humanity where Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Jonathan Edwards says this about pride. He says pride is so much more difficult to discern than any other corruption. The heart is so deceitful and so unsearchable and nothing in the world as it is in this matter. And there is no sin in the world that men and women are so confident in and so difficultly convinced of. And that's pride. I think all of us, if we have to be honest, we struggle with pride. If we look what's going on in our, in our world, and I want to be very pastoral and I want to be very loving, and what I don't want to do is, I think when we talk about pride, when we talk about sin, uh, we always think about another person other than us. We always think about the world out there. Yeah, those people. So I want to forget about those people. I want to think about us here. But, but if you think of what, what's going on in our culture and how our culture is influencing us and it's influencing the way we act, the way we look at things, the way we perceive things, we find ourselves, and we're all guilty of this in our culture, of growing in pride. Like, think about how we view our leaders today. We do not trust our leaders. And at times we, well, most of the time, we refuse to submit to their authority. Why? Because... We don't trust them. We, in our own actions, we've become experts in everything. You know what's best. You are an expert. I am an expert. I'm not going to trust you in what you say to me. I'm just going to Google it and come up with my own research and determine my own truth. I think in 20 years we're going to start doing brain surgery because of YouTube, but that's what's happening. All of us are becoming experts. Look at how we treat others, especially when we have opposing views. We don't really listen to one another. When they have opposing views and we don't agree with them, what do we do? We label them. We give them an unfair label to discredit them. We don't really care what they have to say, but rather we want to distract some information and somehow turn it and prove to them that they are wrong. We live in an age of rage, and it is not just happening outside of the church. It is happening inside of the church. We put unfair labels on people, say, oh, you are this, oh, you are that. 
And as much as we want to justify why the, the way we are, well, Neil, we can't trust leaders because look at how leaders have abused us. We can't submit to our, their authority because look how incompetent they are. I can't agree with you because look at who you are. You are this and you are that. As much as we want to self-justify and why we are the way we are, what lays, that lies at the heart of it is pride. And I'm guilty of it, and you are guilty of it. The Bible says that we should have a posture of humility. Paul tells us in our humility, how should we treat one another? We should treat one another as if you're more important than me. You know better than me. Imagine we looked at one another like that. that that's, what, that's what the Lord calls us in our humility. The posture we have. And so if we believe that the Lord is sovereign, and the Lord controls everything. He establishes kingdoms. He rules over them. That should cause us to have a posture of humility because what that reminds us of to the core is that we are not in control of anything. We are not sovereign over anything. But what pride does inside of our hearts it gives ourselves more credit and self-glory where we have a tendency to think, look at all that I've done. Look that all I have accomplished. If everybody can just be like me, the world will be a such better place. If everybody can just look like me, act like me, see things the way I see things, we will just be better. And that's pride. If the Lord is sovereign, He requires a posture of humility. That's kind of a doozy. So here's the question, though, okay. I, I struggle with pride. How do I develop a posture of humility? Good question. Second, second point, second application is this. Crucial for our humility is the captivation of the majesty and worth of the Lord. Crucial for our humility is the captivation of the majesty and worth of the Lord. You see, pride focuses on self-glory. Humility focuses on the glory of God. Pride focuses on self-glory. Humility focuses on the glory of God. The tragic sinful condition of man is that we have focused on the glory of self, not on the glory of God. Think about King Nebuchadnezzar strutting around his palace. What is he saying? Look at my glory. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I have done. Man, I make a great king, the best king. He was focusing on the glory of self. And yet what did the Lord do? The Lord humbled him and revealed his glory to him. And it's only until he recognized and saw God's glory that it stirred in him a posture of humility. But this is the condition, this is the consequences of the fall. 
This is the sinful nature we find in our own hearts, is that we are constantly captivated by our own glory, and we're constantly distracted in looking away from God's glory. And yet the call to us is to humble ourselves, to no longer look at our own glory, but rather be captivated by the glory of the Lord. Paul, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, He says, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. In other words, Paul says, look around you. Look at creation. It's clearly revealed to everyone that there is a creator and he's revealed his glory in all of creation. And humanity looks at creation and says, eh, I know better. I can do better. Not going to bring glory to this God. I'm not going to show him gratitude. I'm just going to say he doesn't exist. And this is just one big random accident. And instead of humility, this pride leads to self-glory and bowing down to idolatry and so one of the things as christians what we have to constantly do knowing that that is the natural tendency and the posture of our hearts because of our sinful nature is seeking self-glory we have to constantly be captivated by god's glory like, like when we read scripture we need to behold the glory of god in scripture like, like when we gather in in worship We should no longer be focusing on self-glory, but rather we should be captivated by the glory of God and and how it plays out in our worship services. I know for for many of you, including myself, we have a tendency to be so critical, and so we walk out of our worship services. Oh, I don't like this. I don't like that. That dude, he was just too long. Like, can he just be quiet and let's just move on? I'm hungry. You know what that is? That's self-glory. But what should be happening after the end of our worship services, we should be walking out of here not saying, man, he was great, but rather, isn't our God amazing? Look at his glory. Behold his glory. That is a posture of humility, being captivated by his glory in everything, in all of Scripture. The fact that we get to sit at the table, it is a display of his glory. The singing and the musical abilities of people is a display of his glory. The reading of his word is a display of his glory. Your presence here is a display of his glory, and we should be captivated by it. And that helps us to have a posture of humility when we're captivated by his glory. Third application, we see that God and his mercy reveals the truth of his greatness through our humiliation. God and his mercy reveals the truth of his greatness through our humiliation. Like, just think about the entire story we just read in Daniel chapter 4. Like, what incredible mercy did the Lord show Nebuchadnezzar? Not just in warning him, but in judging him. And making him from a superhuman to a subhuman, from a king to an animal. Like how many other kings did the Lord do that for? 
Why did he do that for Nebuchadnezzar and not all the other kings? How many other kings need to go through that humiliation? How many of us do we need to go through that humiliation? Yet he doesn't do it for everyone. We read even in Romans chapter 1, verse, verses 19, that the wrath of God has been revealed by giving us over to our sinful self. In other words, what they're saying is there are certain people, he's giving them over to their sinful selves. You want to walk in your pride? Have at it, buddy. Go ahead and do it. And yet for King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the biggest jerks ever, what does the Lord do? He humbles him. Did he deserve to be humbled? Did he deserve to be warned? Shouldn't he just be struck down like any other dictator? And yet the Lord in his mercy somehow decides to warn him, give him a whole year to repent. He doesn't repent, turns him into an animal for seven years. And yet how did Nebuchadnezzar come to his own senses? By himself? Like have you ever seen a madman all of a sudden come to his own senses? He's mad. Dude's living like an animal. And yet somehow this animal came to a sense as how in the world did that happen? Only through a divine act. Why? Why did the Lord do this for King Nebuchadnezzar? I have no idea. Let's chalk it up to sovereign grace. The Lord is sovereign and gracious. Why did he allow Nebuchadnezzar to come to his senses and look up and say, yeah, I was wrong. I don't know. The Lord just granted him that. And all we can see in Scripture is what incredible mercy and grace that he is faithful in humiliating us. Like, what we normally see humiliation as a bad thing, an embarrassing thing, a, a judgmental thing, but I want to show you what a gracious and merciful thing that is when the Lord humbles us in our humiliation, where he, he breaks us down so that we can stop focusing on our glory and start focusing on His glory. And this is what He did for the king. The king, who was out of his mind, came to his senses. And for us, and our spiritual blindness, may the Lord be pleased to grant us sight. And his mercy, may he grant life to the dead. If we trust Jesus, it's because God has been gracious to us despite our sinful state. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 5, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't safe because he was that great. We just read the story. He was absolute opposite. If the Lord and his grace open up his eyes. And that's true for us. In our humility, in our humiliation, that is a gift from the Lord. That is a gracious and merciful act from the Lord to reveal his goodness and his graceness to us. Here's the hardest time that people have to, uh, the hardest thing when it comes to the gospel. This is why the world looks at the gospel as foolish and weak, because it requires a posture of humility. You know what's the hardest thing to do with people? Is to convince them that they're sinful and in need of a Savior. Some of them would even say, you know what? I get it. I'm sinful. I'm not perfect. But I can do something about it. And yet, that's not the gospel. Because the gospel says you're sinful and there's nothing you can do about it. 
you are dead. You are like a madman out of your senses, and there's no way without the divine act of God for you to come to your right senses. You need God to act on your behalf. And what does the gospel teach us? He did act on our behalf. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins while we were in our pride, self-glorifying ourselves, refusing to submit to the God of the universe, giving him glory and honor. We were bowing down to all of these idols that we think satisfy us in God and his mercy and his graciousness initiated our salvation by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. Why did God do it? I have no idea other than his sovereign grace, that he would die for somebody like me and for somebody like you, even though we never deserved or even came close to deserving it. And in it, God reveals his greatness. He reveals his glory. And the last truth, and we're done, is that any, if you're taking notes, any work of God that shows us his worth should lead to humility. Any work of God that shows us his worth should lead humility. In other words, when we hear the gospel, we receive the gospel in a posture of humility. And when we gather, and when we constantly see God at work in our lives and in the lives around us, that should lead us into a posture of humility. Like, as Christians, we should be known for humble people. That's why Paul, he he tells the the Philippian church to to emulate the example of Christ, who is an example for us of what humility looks like. He says in Philippians 2, verse 6 to 8, who, in existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus humbled himself because he was all about the glory of God. He was all, when, when Satan tempted him with the kingdoms of this world and the glories of that the world has to offer, what did he say? No, forget it. Why? Because he knew the glory of the Father. Why would I settle for a cheap glory if I have the glory of the Father that I'm beholding? He taught his, exam- his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a posture of humility that our Lord Savior has. It's a posture of humility that we should have. And the way we can do it is by humbling ourselves before the Lord, being captivated by His glory. And yet, even in the process, we ask the Lord, Lord, expose our prideful hearts. Expose our sinfulness. May we repent. May we turn from our sins. May we turn to you in humility. Here's my prayer for us. All of this sounds great intellectually. Here's what I can't do. I wish I could do. I wish you cannot just understand it intellectually, but somehow this truth will sit into your heart. And it would transform your life. 
And as hard as I try, I am constantly reminded I cannot do it. Why? I'm not God. So my prayer for you, my prayer for me this whole week has been, Lord, may you expose our pride. May you help us to turn from our sins and in humility turn to you. May we be captivated by your glory. May we consider others as more important than ourselves. May we be the most humble people as we follow the humility of Christ. May we quit turning to ourselves as the saviors. May we quit looking to ourselves thinking we can save ourselves, but in humility acknowledge our weakness and our flaws and our inabilities and say, I can't, but you can. And so whether you're a believer or whether you not believe, that should be the posture of everybody receiving the gospel or even resting in the gospel. If you're a non-believer, that should be your posture in order to receive Christ. And if you are a believer, that should be your posture as you remain in Christ. Beholding His glory in humility. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank You that You have revealed Your glory not just through creation, through your word, and through the cross of Christ. And Lord, may we be captivated by it. Lord, can you expose the pride in our lives? Can you humiliate us and humble us? And as painful as that might sound or seem, Lord, what a gracious act. What great mercy. And can you help us to turn to you and behold you and say, what a great God we have. May we be like King Nebuchadnezzar and say, oh, the Lord is sovereign most high. His kingdom endures forever in his dominion from generation to generation. We are all like a vapor compared to him. And when he does anything, no one can block his hand. No one can say, what have you done, God? For you are God and we are not. And Lord, for those who have not trusted in you, who think that they can save themselves by being better, Can you help them to be humbled and realize they can't save themselves? They need you. They need a Savior. And Lord Jesus, you are the only Savior. And for us who are walking with you as your people, Lord, may we walk in humility as we are captivated by your glory. Lord, help us not to get distracted by the things of this world and the self-glory that the world tells us to constantly look at and chase after. But may we... Be captivated by your glory. May we submit ourselves to you. May we follow the example of Christ, the example of humility. When we engage one another, may we engage one another as as, as they are more important than us. They know better than us. Help us to be gracious people, gentle people, quiet people, submissive people, and humble people. As we continue to pray, 
I just want to give you time to just to meditate. Maybe ask the Lord to, to expose your pride. Ask the Lord to help you to be captivated by His glory so you can have a posture of His humility. Maybe this morning for some of you, you are confronted by your sin for the first time. And you need to repent and you need to turn to the Lord and surrender your life to Him. Maybe this morning you can do that. And as harsh as this message might sound, can we thank the Lord that He humbles us? Can we thank the Lord that He doesn't leave us in our pride and our sinfulness, but He convicts us? He makes Himself known to us? That He exposes our idols? And as we get to the table, what this table reminds us of, it's not what we have accomplished. It is what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And so when we gather around the table, we gather in a posture of humility where we are receiving and we're saying, thank you, Lord Jesus. Your body was given to me. Your blood was shed for me. Without it, I cannot be at this table. Let me pray for us and then we distribute the elements and then meditate on these truths. Is glory displayed in this table? Lord, help us to receive, help us to respond, help us to humble ourselves before you, Lord. We thank you for your incredible mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. What incredible mercy and grace that our Lord Jesus Christ would give his body for a wretched sinner like me and you. And by giving his body, he purchased us. So receive this body in humility, eat it in remembrance of him. Receive his blood in humility that covers your sins, that washed you as white as snow. The new covenant you have in him, drink it in remembrance of him. Lord, we thank you, we praise you. We give you all the glory and all the honor. God, can you help us to trust you? Can you help us to look to you? Can you help us to cling to you? Can you help us to depend on you? Can you help us to behold you and to be overwhelmed by you? Lord, can these truths that we've learned not just shape our minds, but shape our heart and our behavior? We need you, Lord. We need you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship.